Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we break down the difference between different types of index funds, and we also discuss Morningstar's report that the safe withdrawal rate should actually be way lower. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, we're back. Good to see you for another week. We are back. It is always great to see you. And and people can't see what I'm looking at, but you have a fancy new background on your uh, on your Zencaster video feed. I do. And it is the colors of our podcast. Uh, now, part of why I put this up is for sound absorption. And I'm in a new room that's got some echo in it that I'm still working on. Uh, so that was piece one. Number two was that when we had Brian Feraldi on our show, he basically said, if you guys aren't doing video, you're missing it and that we should have a YouTube channel. So in preparation for us to do some video, uh, I will tease that that is something we're going to try and do. Uh, and so I needed a background or wanted a background, I should say, that I thought represented our brand well. So I've got this kind of neon green, blue and uh, and white pattern behind me that I think looks pretty cool. I'm going to need to step up my background game pretty soon. Absolutely. Yeah, because uh, we're, we're normally looking at your living room, Dan. And, uh, you know, I like your guitars, but you got you to gotta take it to the next level. I will. Maybe I'll put all the guitars up and you'll just see a wall of guitars. I think that'll be a popular move. There you go. It'll be the Beato move. That's right. Then I need a wall of amps too to go along with it. So we did get some feedback uh, from some folks that enjoyed last week's show on business lessons from TV. Certainly appreciate everybody listening. Uh, Eric wrote in and said it was a great episode, but he thought of House of Lies on Showtime notes that it is far more vulgar than Silicon Valley, which you have my attention there because Silicon Valley, as we noted on our show, is a pretty vulgar television show. But apparently this takes it to a new level. Also very funny tracks a talented management consultant team competing with other consultants to win business. They talk through the fourth wall, explaining the business transactions, and it's got Don Cheadle and Kristen Bell. That sounds like it's right up my alley. I'm not sure why I don't know this show already, but uh, it's officially on the list. So thank you, Eric. I appreciate the suggestion. That sounds like it's right up my lane in terms of shows that I would like. Yeah, I'm sold. I've actually, I feel like I've heard the name, but have never seen any content from house of lies but i'm gonna have to check it out you know i get to this spot where there's like one show on each of these networks and i end up maintaining a subscription to each network for just like one thing and on showtime that show has been billions for me because i I really like billions i do too and just as we were talking i was like why didn't we bring up billions as part of our finance shows i mean it doesn't have the greatest takeaways but it is a good show yeah, I mean, it's it's awfully scummy. I, I have enjoyed it a lot. I don't know that I've learned that much from it other than uh, the character development is is really interesting, but uh, definitely a good show. Billions and Ballers, which I think is HBO, both, uh, both were on my watch list in a big way for a while. Yeah. All right, so let's get into, I think we've got two topics today. The first of which comes from a question that I got uh, from somebody I was chatting with that was asking me about the differences between 
index funds in the sense of an index mutual fund and ETFs, uh, which are exchange traded funds that also track an index. Uh, and so I guess I wanted to just kick off our discussion today talking through some of those differences because it is a very fine line between the two. And at their core, both products are trying to do really the exact same thing, which is to give you as the investor really low cost access to investing in an index or as close to what you could be as an index as possible. But there are some some differences. And so we wanted to take you through some of those and make sure that even if they're they're fairly nuanced, that that's a difference people recognize. So Dan, the first thing you think of between index mutual funds and ETFs, where do you go? So the biggest thing for ETFs versus mutual funds in general is that ETFs are bought and sold or, or traded throughout the day, much like a stock versus an index or mutual fund, which is redeemed at the end of the day. So if you're trading intraday, you can know exactly what the what the transaction value will be when you enter it versus a mutual fund, you're kind of getting whatever the price is at market close, and then it's going to be passed along to you. So that's, that's not a huge difference maker for long-term investors, uh, but that is I think what I think of as the first material difference between ETFs and mutual funds. And the fact that they're traded lets you do a lot of different things, whether these are you know strategies you're pursuing or not. Obviously, that that's up to to the individual investor, but because you can use because they trade like stocks do, you can do things like limit orders, or you could do stop loss orders, which we're not a huge fan of. Uh, but you could set yourself a limit to buy. You know, so if you're in this mindset that you've got cash and you want to put to, put that to work, if the market drops a little bit, you could set a limit order to buy at your particular price point, and otherwise go about your business and do other things. Uh, you can also use options as a result of that. So if you wanted to do some call writing or put writing, those types of things are available because it's trading like a stock where you're not really going to have that option on an index mutual fund. It's really just a pure buy and hold product. Right. You can you can buy options as hedges. You can short ETFs. I mean, again, not advocating for for any of that necessarily, but those are all on the table for you with the ETF world as opposed to the the mutual fund world. The next thing that I thought of is just availability. And again, I, I don't think that this is a huge issue for most of the major brand label index funds that are out there. But mutual funds generally will have a selling agreement or a holding agreement with different brokerage houses. So not every broker can hold all of the same mutual funds. If you've ever tried to switch brokers, occasionally you'll run into this where something will get rejected or stopped and you try and transfer your account and a few things just get stuck. And that is literally because the receiving broker can't hold all of those positions. That's not going to happen with an ETF because ETFs, again, because of that trading like a stock uh, system that they work on, they can transfer just like a stock would. And so those are going to be much more portable between brokers and you're not going to have to worry about that compatibility issue. Now, it's unlikely that you're changing brokerage houses on a very regular basis. So hopefully this isn't something that you're running into. But if you do have that in your future or you're considering switching from one advisor to another, that's something to look at because an ETF is generally going to be more portable than an index fund would be. The next thing I think about is fees. So from an internal expense perspective, the fees for indexed ETFs and index funds are fairly similar. They should be very low because there's not a big active component to it. 
but one thing we're thinking about is transaction fees at the brokerage house that you're at. So these days, fees have been compressed pretty close to zero. Uh, but some brokers will charge different fees if you're trading mutual funds or ETFs. So I, I've seen even at places where stock trades might be $0, that it could be $45 to trade an index fund. So if you're thinking about somewhere where you're going to be transacting more frequently, it might be worth checking the fee schedule to see what the fees are for those specific products. I also think about minimums. So most mutual funds and, and index mutual funds are going to have a minimum purchase order. Even inside Vanguard's own product, for example, and I'm going to use this not as a recommendation, but just as an example, the Vanguard S&P 500 Admiral Shares Index Fund has a minimum purchase of $3,000. So if you don't have $3,000 to buy some, you can't get a piece. The Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, the ticker's VOO, for as much as one share, right? And right now, one share is about $415 on, on VOO. But that is your minimum there. At any multiple of that dollar amount, you can buy a share of the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF. And so if you've got less money to work with or you're earlier in your investing journey, sometimes ETFs are easier to access with smaller dollar amounts. So that can be one more, one more reason. Which leads me to one of the last things I think about is in terms of accessibility and how those vehicles can play a role in your ongoing investing journey. You know, if you're looking to invest periodically at increments, it's actually much easier to do so in an index fund, in a mutual fund wrapper, because you can buy at various quantities versus having to come up with a whole share of the ETF. So if, if you've started a portfolio and then want to invest 50 or $100 a month into a basket of index funds, it's much easier to do so in an automated way, first of all, and then also to get access at dollar amounts that might not equal a whole share of the ETF yet. Yeah, so that's really the one area where I think an index fund is going to make much more sense. Uh, we've generally been pro ETF with this discussion so far, and I, and I think that we are. That is what we use uh, in our portfolios is if we're going to take an index position, we're going to use an ETF to do it. However, if you're making regular recurring purchases and you don't want to have to make it two steps, in an index fund, you can have the direct fund relationship and you can set up your recurring funding and it goes right into that fund on a monthly, weekly, whatever basis. On an ETF, you've really got two transactions. You've got to move your cash into the brokerage account. And then number two, you have to buy the ETF. Now, Either you need to do that or you need a manager to do that, whether that's a human advisor or a robo-advisor. But there, are, it, there is one extra step when you're working with an ETF. And so while that's a product that we generally prefer and think is uh, superior in several ways, for a recurring investment program, a fund might be the better option. And that, that's really the place where I still... Uh, see them used and have recommended their use most frequently. I realize we've been talking about ETFs for basically the whole first part of the show, and I'm not sure we ever defined what ETF stands for. Uh, it is an exchange-traded fund. So if you're ever confused about which one is which, ETF is exchange-traded fund, which is the easy way to remember it is traded on an exchange like a stock. So the, the very final thing, and I think that this gets down to splitting hairs differences, because both of these are really tax-efficient products in a taxable account. But in theory, 
an ETF is also more tax efficient than an index fund, correct? Correct. Yeah. Again, splitting hairs, but with an ETF, when you're trading it, you know what you paid for it. You have your basis. You'll know what your gain or loss is because it's going to be whatever you receive once you sell it. That's very individual. That's, that's specific to you and your transaction. With an index fund or a mutual fund, when you redeem shares, that order goes to the fund company and they have to sell stocks in that basket to get the cash that you need to uh, you know, to cash out. The stocks that they sell may have been held long before you ever entered the fund. So the cost basis is not specific to you. And then they allocate those gains across their shareholders or, or their unit holders. So uh, you might incur capital gains even when you don't sell. Those are distributed to you whenever people are just redeeming in general. And then when you do sell, your capital gain allocation may not be representative of your true gain while you've held those shares. Yeah. On an index fund, that's always interesting to me because I know that that's how it works on mutual funds. And on a case where a mutual fund has inbound flows and outbound flows, uh, they may not have to sell anything. They might simply be replacing the cash that is leaving with cash that's coming in and they don't have to do anything in their portfolio, right? It literally think about it as one big account where on hopefully a good day, they've got both inflows and outflows where the mutual fund thing got really ugly for people is in a period like 2008 where there was kind of this run on the market and a lot of people were redeeming shares way more so than we're putting money in and you saw really big sales of appreciated assets and in a year like 2008, where values were way down, people were getting tax bills because the funds were selling and distributing highly appreciated gains, basically, to fund holders. I think that's much less likely in an index fund uh, to see that sort of situation going on. Uh, But in theory, based on the mechanics, I believe that could happen if they saw really, really high redemptions and were forced to sell those shares. Okay, so let's move in to topic number two for today, which is a report that Morningstar put out that if you're just reading the headlines is sort of terrifying. Morningstar, and we'll put a link to this if anybody wants to read it. Uh, In full disclosure, this is a 59-page white paper. Um, So tread, tread accordingly if you're interested in that. But they put out a report called the State of Retirement Income Safe Withdrawal Rates. And the headline here is that they estimate 3.3%. Now, we've talked about safe withdrawal rates a lot on our show. We hear it referred to as the 4% rule. We've talked about that it could be closer to 45 to 5% based on even the originator of the 4% rule. Morningstar is coming out with kind of a doom and gloom sounding scenario. Dan, what was your immediate take looking at this? So when I read the headline first, I chuckled a little bit because I've heard this very same withdrawal rate a decade ago in the industry where they were talking about how 4% is old news. Really, you should be looking at something closer to 3.3. I think it might have been that on the nose. And you know, it, in my insurance world, everyone was kind of using that as a reason to move people out of equities and into insurance products because now it's become a lot more attractive to, to guarantee something closer to that range. So that was my initial reaction was, I've heard this before. This seems to be a recurring theme that comes up every decade or so. So let's just think before we get into whether this is valid or not. And certainly their study is not invalid, but um, just in terms of how reactive we think people should be to this. The difference in what you would need 
to create $50,000 a year. If you're comfortable with a 4.5% withdrawal rate, $50,000 a year can be created from a portfolio of just north of $1.1 million. Right. So for each $1.1 million you have, if you could create $50,000 of retirement income safely, that's a pretty good number. If the actual withdrawal rate is 3.3%, for the same $50,000 safely, you need $1.5 million. So even though it may sound like we're kind of splitting hairs here, talking about 3.3 versus 4, those numbers sound like they're pretty close to each other. They're not. That's a $400,000 difference in what you would need to save and accumulate for retirement to recreate the same amount of income. So I do think that wherever we fall on this is an important distinction. Uh, and so to, to kind of brush it off as immaterial, you know, I, I think is probably silly because th- that's a really big difference to me. That could mean many extra years of working I- in your retirement plan to go from 1.1 to $1.5 million. You're, you're relying on some investment return and then your ability to continue to add for, for a while, I'd imagine. Well, yeah. And, and you know, I talk a lot with, with clients about the major levers that you have. And unfortunately, return rate is the one that we have the least control over. Uh, but your major levers for retirement planning are, is going to be how long do you work? How much brute force savings power do you put in? So what is your savings rate? The inverse of how uh, of spending, really, right? So, so your savings rate uh, is, is also affecting your spending rate. The spending rate could also be affected in retirement. You could choose to spend less money or plan to spend less money in retirement. And then finally is your investing outcomes, right? So savings rate, how long you're going to save for slash work for, and how much you're planning to spend. You've got some control over those three. You've got way less control over how your investments do. You can control your allocation. You can try and control your temperament. You can control your your outlook. But at the end of the day, you don't have control over the the market. And that is the uncertain world that we're all trying to prepare for and plan for. Morningstar here used some pretty modest numbers in terms of what they're expecting. Right. Their forward-looking returns are a big influence on where they get this 3.3%. But it's important to dig into their assumptions to determine how appropriate that is for, for using that for your number. So the first thing I think that's important to note is the portfolio they're analyzing is a portfolio of 50% equities, so 50% stocks, and 50% fixed income or bonds. So uh, they're looking at a 50-50 portfolio to determine what's, what's that right number to, to get you for 30 years. They're, they're looking at a 30-year retirement time horizon. Additionally, on top of that, they want a 90% degree of certainty that you won't run out of money over that period. So again, 50-50 stocks, bonds for 30 years with a 90% degree of confidence that that money will be there at the end of year 30. Looking at the fact that they're using a 50-50 portfolio in itself, I think is interesting to me. Uh, In my mind, the more standard retirement portfolio is 60-40, meaning 60% equity, 40% bonds and cash. And the reason that I think that's the standard is a couple things. Number one, we believe life expectancies have continued to go up. And so growing your purchasing power is no longer, in my mind, a nice to have when you think about retirement income. It is a necessity. Uh, And so having some equity exposure into and through retirement, 
I think is really important. So, you know, we're not in a world where you can sit in bonds and cash for the entire time and sleep soundly at night without growing your purchasing power unless you have wildly oversaved in terms of just having lots of brute force brute force cash relative to what you're going to need. So, 60/40 tends to be my my more common baseline. And then when you look at the return numbers that they're using here, I think that 50/50 equity to bond split is what's partially influencing it. Now, again, they're using pretty modest returns. For a 50-50 portfolio, they think forward-looking returns are going to be at 5.23% annually on a forward-looking basis. That is not a real return number. So they're saying 5.23% before inflation. That means if you've got inflation at 2.5%, which is kind of where the the tips treasury break even rate right now that we like to use as our guidepost suggests that it will be on a longer term basis your return here is sub 3% your the the amount that you're growing your purchasing power now if you go on their scale up to a 60% equity portfolio it drop it goes up to 5.76 so you're getting another half a percent of annual returns for that additional 10% that you're allocating to equity. Again, I would have liked to see the report run there just because I think that's a more realistic uh, allocation that, that somebody should be exploring for retirement. And, and again, if you're, if you're backing into what do you keep in cash and bonds and you're expecting to spend 4% a year, well, that means over any five-year period, you might go through 20% of your portfolio. 20% of your principal from that starting spot. So to be at 40% bonds and cash, it means you've got almost 10 years worth of what you're expecting to spend, which means that the other 60% that's in equity can in theory cook for a long time. Now that's not the reality of how most people manage their portfolios of just spend through the whole bucket and let the rest just cook. But again, I, I think of it that way of how many years worth of safe assets are we preparing for? And at 40% in bonds and cash, that's quite a bit, actually. It is. And to to go back to something you said about not being able to just sit in cash and bonds during retirement because you require that equity-type return to, to boost your portfolio and to increase your availability for spending as costs go up, Morningstar does include an analysis of what happens as you decrease your equity exposure from 50 to 40 to 30 to 20 and what you see is that the withdrawal rate actually goes down. The safe withdrawal rate goes down as your equity exposure goes down from 50%. So if you're in 10% equities, for example, and the rest in safe assets, they have a 3% safe withdrawal rate because you don't have that long-term return prospect of those equities helping you. Now, they do talk about several things in this report that I think are important. Number one is flexible withdrawals. The more flexible you are with your retirement spending needs, the better situation you're going to be in. And for a lot of these projections, they assume that you're going to have the same needs and that you are going to ignore the world that is going on around you. I don't believe that in 2008, when the world was going haywire, that retirees were looking at their portfolios dropping and saying, I'm going to barrel through cash with the same reckless abandon that I did a year ago when things felt really good. I just don't believe that. Uh, I, I think people instinctively will tighten their belts. Now, if they've got things planned 
you know, they're going to continue to do those things. But I, I generally believe when we feel bad about the economy that we adjust our spending a little bit. And I think most people have some of that room, whether they want to explicitly exercise it or not. I think that's worth thinking about. Are your costs fixed? Is it overhead? Is it mortgage payments, things that have to continue? Or is it golf and travel and things that you'd like to do, but you could go from playing the really nice course to the municipal course, uh, or you could choose a local vacation versus a, a flight to Hawaii, or you know, you name it, right? I think there's a lot of places, at least personally, I see that in my budget, where the things I would like to do, sure, let's put those on the list. But if I had to spend a year or two or three doing a reduced version of those things, I absolutely could. And so I think that flexibility, at least in the leisure end of somebody's budget, is really important because it means that you know we don't necessarily have to prepare for every single year, like clockwork, the same amount of money coming out of the portfolio. Yeah, I love that. And, and identifying those spaces in your budget is critical too, because then you know how to adjust for them. So knowing what your habits are and the way you spend your discretionary funds allows you to turn that faucet on or off depending on, you know, on the year that we've had. The other nuance when we're talking about safe withdrawal rates that I think gets often overlooked, especially in practice, is that these safe withdrawal rates are supposed to be a starting point And then you're supposed to adjust them for inflation every year. So that 3.3%, even in the report we're talking about, is just the year one withdrawal rate. And then in the next year, you're supposed to increase that depending on the inflation number that we've seen. In practice, most people don't think that way. They think about the 4% withdrawal rate, for example, and then use that year after year as how much is kind of the, the speed limit they can pull from their portfolio. So that makes a meaningful difference. Um, In the report, they do talk about that as one of the alternatives they've tested. And if you are foregoing those inflation adjustments, the withdrawal rate comes back pretty close to 4%. They have it just hovering around 3.8% as what they believe is sustainable over the long run, given the um, 50-50 portfolio. Yeah. I mean, in theory, if you looked at your portfolio every year and said, I'm going to take 5% of it, whether it's up or down, and you adjusted your spending you should never run out of money, right? Because your your portfolio is constantly going to be adjusting in value if you're doing it that way. And and so I definitely agree that if you're going to use a flexible mandate that that again, and not not to beat beat the uh, the dead horse there, but I, if you're going to use a flexible mandate for what you're pulling from the portfolio, you've got a lot more leeway than somebody that does need that consistent, specific amount of cash flow every single year, no matter what. I take this report and like to use it as a data point as we do planning. I think it's always better to be conservative than aggressive in the assumptions that we cannot control, like returns, and make sure that your plan is battle-tested for a lower return environment. Because you know it's possible that we see that. I think a lot of people are concerned about at least midterm returns being the same that they've been over the long run. So, so be prepared. Make sure you model those scenarios as you prepare for retirement. But I wouldn't look at this and, and have a doomsday scenario in my head of having to work an extra decade and not being able to achieve your goals. If, if Morningstar is right with these projections, I believe that they are projecting the next 30 years to be the worst equity markets we've ever seen. That, that's really what they're saying here. 
is that the next 30 years, now again, like Dan just said, you know, Schiller Cape has been up. There's been a lot of these data points where we look at and go, yeah, I don't think you should expect the next 10 years to look like the last 10 years. I really don't. We've been in a raging market. I don't think that means that you sit on the sidelines. I don't think that means you become a market timer. But if your expectation is that we're getting double-digit returns on a consistent basis for the next decade and your plan requires that, I think you're you're in for a rude awakening. So do be realistic. Does that mean that the next 30 years of the U.S. and world economy are going to be in the dumps and that we don't return to a period of higher growth? I don't think that either, right? This feels like an overcorrection to me. Now, maybe some people need that message. Maybe they are working with unrealistic expectations and they need somebody to bring them back down to earth. If it does that, great. But I don't know that telling people everything's going to be bad uh, is the right way to go over the next 30 years. I I do still have an optimistic outlook on... uh, the state of society to continue to to develop and and solve problems. This country needs your optimism, Ross. You know what? There are days that it's tough to come up with, but uh, I am generally a not. It's not. It's not even that I'm like an over optimist. I I don't think. I think it's that I believe in problem solving. That's why I like business. Is I believe people are trying to solve problems. They are trying to find a product fit, and I think that that will continue. Right and, and so, so I do have optimism in that, but more so in the process than simply everything's going to be okay for no reason. I mean, if you're an investor, you are by definition, at least at some thread, an optimist, unless your entire book is short, unless you've done nothing but bet against the economy and the world, at some piece of your core, you have to be an optimist and think that this is something that's going to grow and do well in the future. And if not, you should be in like cash and gold and and hiding in a bunker somewhere because that, I think that is an inherent piece of being an investor is optimism about the future. Do you know what I'm optimistic about today? What's that? House of Lies, which I'm going to tune into over the weekend and see what that's about. Can't wait. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into our show this week. We hope it's been helpful. Send us a note. Check your balances at Outlook.com. And also, an apology to people that I owe mugs to. Uh, we do still have Check Your Balances mugs. I have promised several of them and have been very delinquent in sending them out. Uh, So I apologize. They are on the way. They're not lost in the mail. The blame belongs to me. We thank you again for tuning in and look forward to catching up with all of you next week. God, this is a long report.